Hey folks, Randy Newberg here, and we are recording another episode of Hunt Talk Radio, Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio, from, well, how far are we from Mexico right now? Three miles. Three miles. And if you guys knew that I was, and I say this, I am a fugitive from justice in Mexico, and that's why you will never see an episode uh, filmed recorded or anything in mexico and that's a story for a different podcast but anyhow i am down here doing everything that i can't even explain we're, we're not going to have enough time in a podcast to explain to you all the things i've been hunting and chasing in the last six or seven days and with me are uh two guys who work for arizona game and fish and they're they're off the clock here so we we don't want uh, we don't want you guys saying anything that's going to cause you to lose your jobs, but I, I've hunted with them, so I know what kind of good guys they are, and they're fountains of information, and they're, they're going to join us, and we're going to talk about all the things I did and all the things I found out about that now are on my list. So with me is Wade Zarlingo. And Wade and I, when did we first meet? 1984, I think. So it was through Jerry long, Pritchard, through yeah. a great, great friend of both of ours. It, yeah. It, uh, he, you were going to ASU, we were going to DeVry at the time. Right. right. Yeah. That and was a long time ago. That was a ago. long time ago. And the, also with us is he's making his second appearance on our podcast, <laughs> for which I'm grateful. It, it's funny. We, we run into him out in the hills <laughs> quail hunting today, and I'm like, Jonathan, what are you doing tonight? He's like, I don't know why. I said, I want to have you on the podcast. Sure. So how far did you drive to get here? Well, I, we're staying in Sonoida, so it's only about a 30-mile drive. So Oh, all right. So Jonathan Odell, he was in episode 39 when we talked about dove hunting the history of doves, uh, the science of doves, squirrel cook-offs. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it. We covered a lot of really serious information. A lot of ground. Yeah. So anyhow, these guys are with me, and we're going to get into a lot of stuff about hunting in Arizona that I love to do, and I would bet any money most of you are not aware that these opportunities exist. But... When we're done with this podcast, you're going to know they exist, and you're going to know how you can take advantage of them. So, but before we get into that, real quickly, as we say, this is Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio, and they are the ones who title sponsor this. They title sponsor my TV show. They they just support anything and everything related to the self-guided public land hunter, and uh, great company that makes great products. So we really appreciate them and all they do for us and for our audience so that we can bring this these platforms to you. Uh, the, the other company is Orion Coolers, which right now I have an Orion Cooler that is serving as our desk here. Uh, it's, it's what the, the whole podcast gear is spread out. We are, we're doing this. <laughs> we should almost be filming it because Jonathan's sitting on an ottoman. Wade is in an <laughs> office chair that is way too low for use of anything. And I'm sitting on a Pelican case because we're at the Holiday Inn Express in Nogales, Arizona. And, uh, our desktop is the Orion cooler right now. So I've told you, I, I can find millions of uses for Orion coolers. They also make great luggage. 
uh, when I fly, I lock them and I put anything of value in there. Uh, go to OrionCoolers.com. They, they, there's a reason why we use them the way we do and why they're so important to what we do. So OrionCoolers.com, and I guarantee you it'll be one of the best coolers you'll ever have or the best cooler you'll ever have. The other is Onyx Maps. Uh, I can't even explain how many different ways I use Onyx Maps, but suffice to say that if you hunt the places I do, as many places as I do, and you hunt areas with a lot of public and private ground like we were hunting today, Wade, that fence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a good thing your dog didn't. She didn't go across that, did she? She she must have on X maps. It's that respect that she has. Okay, for the landowner, the (laughs) private land that's available there. Goes all the way from the owner down to its dog. Absolutely, absolutely. No, it's like the Shiloh is her name. It's like she knew exactly where the property boundary was. Absolutely. She, I think she might have the Onyx maps with her. You think so? She well, might. It might be maybe. ingrained in her GPS collar. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, we use those for everything. Uh, they have the chips. If you're an old school guy like me, it's a little micro SD card you put in the back of your GPS. Uh, but the, the what I'm coming to learn is that the uh, the phone app, the smartphone app, really has a lot of of good features to it that I I did not know there were that many layers and you could do that many things with a smartphone and an app like the Onyx Map. So go to onyxmaps.com and get yourself the app, get yourself the chip, and I guarantee you, you'll shoot a big elk this year. <laughs> Ooh. I, I, Guaranteed, <laughs> huh? I like that. Matt and Eric and Rob <laughs> and the crew over at Onyx Maps, they're going to be getting all kinds of phone calls. And then uh, we're going to get into some of this. And this is why uh, the next group that that has been sponsoring the podcast, and, and all of these companies have been with us from the start. They have been here since this podcast started. So that, that tells you something about the strength of the relationships and my appreciation for the products they make. But GoHunt.com has this service called the Insider. And you've heard me talk about it on other podcasts, but we're going to talk about Arizona and the big game draw system and everything else today on this podcast. We're going to touch on it. So if you want to know a lot about how Arizona works. You want the best draw odds you can get for for Arizona. You want to know detailed information about the units, uh, the the land composition of public and private, the you name it, success rates, the trophy quality. Subscribe to their insider, gohunt.com, and they have their insider service. And if you subscribe, use the promo code Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, and you're going to get a $50 Sportsman's Warehouse gift card. So go to gohunt.com forward slash insider. And when you sign up, R-A-N-D-Y is your promo code, Randy. And get yourself a $50 Sportsman's Warehouse gift card. So with that out of the way, where do you guys even want to start? You want to start chronologically? You want to start? What? I mean, I, I shot a duck here. Yeah. 
And Jonathan looks at me like, yeah, duh. <laughs> Wade said, now make sure and bring your federal duck stamp and bring all your other stuff. You have, what's it? What did I have? The hip stamp? The hip from stamp the dove, or huh? the migra state migratory bird stamp. Yeah. And he said, you're going to get a chance to shoot ducks down here. I'm like, what? But I did. I brought it all. And the second morning, I think it was. Yeah, second morning. You came over and got me. And had said, to come get you. You drove right by him. You were so focused <laughs> on the on the cow's whitetail and yeah. the everything else that was going on. You drove yeah. right by him. But Yeah, so then I run into Jonathan this evening, and he breaks out his phone, and you've been showing me, or you showed me all these duck hunts you've been on. Oh, yeah. And crane hunt. Mm -hmm. I mean, people do not think of Arizona for waterfowl hunting. No, no, and it's it's... Yeah, but it's. Are you sure you want people to know? Yeah, I don't. I absolutely don't. I mean, it's we're people have a tough time uh, coming to Arizona um, when you come from somewhere else. Yeah, I grew up shooting ducks right where you do now, right in, in Montana. Montana. Yeah, and what you said earlier, exactly the same thing. You shoot mallards, mm -hmm. and you shoot. You know, you there's a few balls, ducks you get to shoot. Few, few divers, yeah, um, and. Arizona's water is very different in how it's spread across the landscape. Um, but, you know, we're the end of the flyway for a lot of species. Right. And they all end up down here. So we get this huge mix of birds um, where it's, you don't just see mallards. Yeah. But, you know, there's mallards and pintails and widgeons and everything else and and i struggle uh, a lot to just try and shoot seven of the same duck because you never know what's coming next <laughs> and you just get excited because there's something new coming and uh so it's but we have different waters here and so uh you know i grew up in montana and it was shooting rivers and it was you know Spring big Creeks. waters yeah i was some shooting big yeah. waters i love decoying it's the kind of guy I am. And you just have to realize that you have to stay, you have to get a little bit more versatile in your hunting mm -hmm. um, because we do have a lot of different stuff. A lot of folks here in Arizona love to jump shoot mm -hmm. um, tanks and stuff that are out in the desert because we are the desert and there's just little water pockets spread all over the place. Right. And, uh, but it, there's small streams, there's, there's big rivers, the Colorado, um, that's a huge migratory stop. We're, the, we're kind of the end of the line for a lot of birds down there and really? out on the west side. And um, yeah, I mean, you can, you hunt in a lot of different methods here. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's small ponds, big lakes, rivers. Right. And of course, the, the one thing that I will tell you that's, that's probably the biggest secret to duck hunting in Arizona. Yeah. Every one of those ducks that you see here in Arizona, has been shot at the entire way down the flyway. Okay. And they have seen every duck spread imaginable. Yeah. You know, they have literally seen the mallard teal spread in a C hook, a J hook. Like it's just, <laughs> it's as common as bread coming down. So when they get to me, you know, people laugh at the decoys I have in my garage. Um, yeah. But I, I, you know, I, I carry shoveler decoys. Cinnamon teal decoys. Yes, they do make those. Um, you know, I have ringnecks. I have, I have to throw the strangest looking spread you've ever seen to be able to shoot ducks <laughs> because they've seen everything else. I have to throw them a curveball. And surprisingly, I mean, it works. I was shooting a lot of mallards last year over shoveler decoys. Um, you know, the, the pintails get really wary. I mean, um, 
the mojo ducks. Oh my gosh. You know, like yeah, the, they've the, seen the mojo, motion, the motion. Duck. Yeah. The yeah, spinning wings. Yeah. They've seen them, you know, mm-hmm. they've seen them all the way down. And so everyone's like, don't use them. Don't use them. Well, yes, you can use them. Just use the right ones or use them in a different manner that, that, really? that everyone else does. So, uh, my personal favorite, so shovelers and cinnamon teal here in Arizona yeah. come directly in like laser beams to the blue wing teal. Really? Oh my God. It's some of the funnest time to throw a blue wing teal. So I throw a blue wing teal out over shoveler decoys and, and you know, just oddball stuff because, and I, and I fly the, the waterfowl surveys yeah. um, from the air. And it's amazing when you're flying in the air, how easy it is to identify decoy spreads. I get to see it from the duck's point of view. Yeah. And I look down and I go, oh my gosh, those are fake. Yeah. You know, people don't even realize that how fake it looks, you know, their own decoy spread. So, um, uh, cause I've given guys some great advice. I said, you know, only a human would put decoys out every three to four feet apart. Right. Ducks don't do that. Right. Ducks, you know, if there's a common food source, I tell guys, if you have your decoys, have all the weights down, pull it out, tie it in a knot. Yeah. So they're all hooked together and just throw it out there because ducks love to cluster around food sources. Right, they do. And so you're not trying to provide them space to land in. You're trying to look like real ducks. And if you have some jerk cord to get them to throw some ripples and stuff, <laughs> you get ducks. I mean, it's amazing. But so, yeah, I have to use a lot of different techniques down here. So you showed me these pictures. It's the close. I mean, Arizona is known for big game hunting. Yep. If, if you were to poll our audience, TV, podcast, forum, They'd all be thinking big game. Yeah. And more than likely elk and mule deer. Most likely. Yeah. Yep. Because that's their greatest opportunity. Desert cheap. Mm, good luck with that if you're really lucky. Sure. Antelope. Almost got to be as lucky to do that as with. Yeah. But then you get a guy like me. And, but I, I, I don't want to leave this waterfall thing. Because you showed me a picture that I thought you were big game hunting, and it was a pile of sandhill cranes, you and a bunch of other <laughs> yeah. guys. That I'm like, holy crap, I wouldn't want to pack that limit out of there. Yeah. What's the deal with the sandhill cranes here? So Arizona is unique in the fact that there are two, there are two very large populations of sandhill cranes. Uh-huh. Um, there's the uh, mid-continent, yep. which has a lot of the lesser uh subspecies and then the Rocky Mountain population of graders. Well, here in Arizona, both of those populations overlap in our southeast corner. Um, So people all the time hear about the the cranes wintering in Bosque del Apache, New Mexico. That's like, you know, I mean, a lot of people know that. And they do. There's a lot of sandhill cranes that that actually winter there. A lot of snow geese. The thing of, of Arizona is we don't get the snow geese. But, and, and, you know, we really want to respect the whole idea of Bosque del Apache and all that other stuff. But I will tell you that we generally winter more Sandhill Cranes really? in one valley in Arizona than Bosque del Apache does. Can we say what valley or is that? Yeah, Sulphur Springs Valley. Mm-hmm. Where is that, southeast Arizona? Southeast Arizona. It's right over, you know, the New Mexico line. Um, it's a big valley. runs uh, uh, basically from Douglas in the south, uh, the border crossing there. Uh, Wilcox on I-10, which okay. isn't too far away from the New Mexico line. Yeah. Uh, Lordsburg and Deming. And, um, yeah, we have two very large, um, we have the Wilcox Playa close to the town of Wilcox and a big uh, 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 wildlife management area that we have, Whitewater Draw. Yeah. Um, and the birds are split between the two. A lot of private land through the middle. They grow a lot of corn, uh, you know, a lot of things that, that the cranes like. Yeah. And uh, we, we have made the, um, 
agreement with the Pacific Flyway that we would maintain two uh, wintering roost sites down there. And so, you know, most folks are are pretty surprised, especially when you go to our whitewater draw facility, just how close you are to the cranes on our viewing area. Um, We have a nice bermed platform you can get out on and, and stuff and see the cranes, bring your cameras, bring your binoculars and scopes and stuff and and we had cranes i was just there uh two days ago um and you know we had probably thirteen thousand cranes right there on whitewater draw it's about half of them most of them were so we're still the other half were probably out feeding um but we had cranes you know 20 yards away um, so that you could see them up close and personal you told me there were leftover tags tell me how that works well, it, for Arizona, it's it's a it's a draw hunt. Our our hunts are based on the Rocky Mountain population, the graders, the big ones. Yeah, the, the ones the ones that when they're in Montana out in the green field, when I drive by in June, the green is about a foot tall by then. Yeah, you'd swear they're white-tailed deer standing out there till they lift their head up. Just about. <laughs> so, um, a lot of the Pacific Flyway states, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, you know, everyone that hunts sandhill cranes um, that has the Rocky Mountain population, we have to kind of be careful um, because they're a much smaller population than the Midcontinent. The Midcontinent is something like half a million birds. Oh, okay. Um, but so we, we have a, a, a fixed formula that tells us based on the surveys how many cranes uh, overall we can take out of the population. And then it's divvied up amongst the states, whether you're a breeding state or a wintering state and uh, a lot of things. Actually, Arizona was the first state in the Pacific Flyway to start hunting Sandhill Cranes in 1981. Hmm. Um, We we brought that to the Rocky Mountain population and and, uh, started that. New Mexico followed us the year after. And then it's just kind of spreading out. Sandhill Crane hunting is becoming very popular. You see it on TV a lot more now. And yeah, it's spreading east. Um, Kentucky and Tennessee just recently got seasons in the past few years. Um, And so it's got to be, well, I don't say it's got to be. Is it good eating? Oh, it's phenomenal. Really? Yeah, you've heard ribeye in the sky. Um, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, oh, they're they they're a real dark, rich red meat, mm-hmm. the same way ducks and geese and and doves are. Right. Um, but don't taste anything like them. Oh. Um, you know, I mean, they're most of their diet for a lot of it is corn, uh, alfalfa. Um, they do eat. You know, they'll go out into the into the water and eat snails and right. and different things. I mean, I've even seen them eat mice, which yeah. is strange. <laughs> um, but uh, they're they're really big bird, but. Yeah, they, they taste phenomenal. They're, it's a little bit different in terms of how much meat you get off them because a lot of their legs and their wings are really tendinous yeah. because they fly for a long way. We actually have birds who've uh, landed in Arizona from the, from the mid-continent lesser population from Siberia. Wow. Um, they've taken the trip all the way across and made it to Arizona. Um, so it's, Crazy. yeah, they got to fly a long way. But uh, so for us, it is a draw. It's a draw, so we have to monitor that. Right. Um, and uh, that draw happens after the fall draw by about a month, month and a half or so. Um, so the fall draw, usually the deadline for that is June. Mm-hmm. And the, the okay. deadline for Sando Cranes is, is all by itself out there in, in usually about uh, August. So it, I came down and I did all these things. And now you're, it, it, see, I thought, I, I thought I'd done all the things that you could do here. And I run into Jonathan tonight, and now it's like I got a whole new list. I got leftover Sandhill crane tags available to me. A- am I right there? Yeah, the hunts are already over for the season. Well, right, so. but, but well, I'm coming back next sure. year because I, I have, there's going to be a reckoning with me and a cow's white-tailed deer. <laughs> but that, that, that's later in this podcast, last waterfall thing. So I shoot my first Arizona duck, and how ironic is it? 
I've sh- I'm going to shoot more ducks this season in Arizona than I am in Montana. <laughs> My son and his girlfriend Lillian and I, when they were home to, in Montana for Christmas, we went out and it was a bust. Two ma- two greenheads came in and my son shot them both. Mm-hmm. I come to Arizona and I I shoot a duck. I, I, there's it's just I mean not that one duck is a big thing, but there just seems to be this crazy irony or contrast to that of what people think. Mexican duck. Mexican duck. That's I've heard about them, and, and this isn't some sort of Donald Trump kind of bigotry, whatever <laughs> kind of thing. This is a true thing. It's this a Mexican a thing. Duck. If you look at our waterfowl regulations in Arizona, right, they say no more than two hen mallards or Mexican-like ducks. Mexican-like duck. What's mm-hmm. that mean? So they they're, they have uh, the same. Sp- general species so for most people most people wouldn't recognize um you know the unless you had them both in your hand Mm -hmm. you may kind of overlook the fact that there's a duck that looks like a hen mallard but has a few different features they're a little subtle difference i mean i remember the first time i shot one and i was holding my hand and i had my buddy with me and, uh, you know, we're like, oh, you know, Hen Mallard. And uh, just because just immediately that was your thought. And I kept looking at it and I was just rolling over. I, was, I couldn't believe how rich and beautiful the color was mm-hmm. in it. And I just kept looking at it. My buddy's like, dude, you act like you've never seen a Hen Mallard before. You know, yeah. you've been shooting them like for <laughs> you know, most of your adult life. Like, what is wrong with you? I said, I don't know. There's just something beautiful about it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was later on I realized I'm like, wow, that was a Mexican duck. So, um, What's really interesting is is those guys who greenhead shoot. Me, you see that you see them on TV. You see every, like mm-hmm. well, oh, we're only going to shoot the drakes. Right. If you tried that in Arizona, you would miss out on an opportunity on a very unique duck. So there are four species in the in the genus of Anis, which is the 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 mallard family family. Okay. Um, they're all, you know, somewhat related. So you have the mallard, right? The green heads, the green heads that I hunt. Yeah. yeah. You have the, uh, American black duck, which is mostly in the East coast. Kind yeah. Of Central day. East. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You have the model duck. Where, where I have, the model duck is down on the coast. Usually Florida has a lot and, and they're okay. hanging out down there. And then you have the Mexican duck. Now, the Mexican duck has a really long, tumultuous history about whether it was recognized or not. The American Ornithologist Union has just like, there's been this study and it says this, and then there's that study, and they're like, well, no, it doesn't exist. And it's been back and forth for years. Um, we in Arizona, regardless of what the American Ornithologist Union thinks, yeah. um, or even Fish and Wildlife Service, because they'd followed the American Ornithologist, um, you know, they're like, oh, you know, it's, it's whether or not it's recognized as a real thing. And we here do recognize it. And we know recently there was a, a, a genetic study done in, I think it was 2011, the paper was released. And because for years, I mean, we're talking going back to the 70s where there's this back and forth on whether it's a real real duck or not as right. a different species. 2011, they did some uh, research on the Mexican ducks along the Rio Grande in New Mexico, did some genetics work. Because the the American Ornithologist Union believed that Mexican ducks were just kind of hybrids of mallards. Okay. Because occasionally you will see the mallard 
you know, stuff come out. I mean, they will crossbreed. Okay. And you'll get a Mexican duck that has a little bit of green on it or something and um, that. But they, they looked at the ducks over on the Rio Grande and come to find out they're actually more closely related to model ducks than they are mallards. Oh. So the introgression of some mallard genes really wasn't, you know, a, a big issue. It was wow, they're, they're model ducks like clear out in Florida, <laughs> you know? Um, and so uh, we've been going back and forth. We're, we're learning a lot more about them as we've gone along. We're, you know, we're uh, hoping to be banding a lot. Actually, we're, we're planning to be banding from the Colorado River between Arizona and California yeah. and Presidio, Texas, which is the, wow. the range, the east-west range of Mexican ducks. Because huh. um, the only study, major study, the banding study that's been done was um, uh, in Arizona back in 78. Yeah. But um, yeah, we're going to attempt to ban them all across the range and start learning about them. Um, because one of, the, one of the major papers, and this was kind of the funny thing, is back in the day, we didn't have genetics. We didn't have you know, a lot of the tools we have today. Right. And they said, well, based on how it looks, you know, they had these plumage characteristics of the different feathers and stuff. And, and things they exhibited um they came up with this whole like scale it was like a zero to 36 on a, on a scale and 36 being an absolute 100 percent mexican duck no right. hybridization and they looked at ducks all the way from arizona clear down to the bottom of chihuahua mexico yep down in the bottom of chihuahua mexico which is the north south kind of range and when they did that even the ducks at the very bottom of chihuahua didn't score 36. Wow. You know, but the ones up north, but there was a definite difference. They looked across and they said the northern ducks are lighter than the ones all the way down the bottom, which are darker, but none of them scored perfect. Yeah. And so it was like, well, even it, so, how is it that a Mexican duck that truly would have been Mexican, like <laughs> this is a Mexican duck, it's as far south as they possibly exist, how is it they don't even qualify to be a Mexican duck? Yeah. You know, that seems re absurd. Right. And so, you know, and then they, there's a lot of introgression with mallards and stuff we've seen over the years. But then the genetics came back and said, wow, they're models. But there's a definite climb when you look at that. And so some of Arizona's ducks are a little lighter than the ones you'd see way down in Mexico. But um, occasionally we'll get some real dark ones because, you know, one of the things we've seen is that maybe some of those ones down south actually migrate north. Really? During the migration season. <laughs> and so, yeah, kind of some oddball stuff. But yeah, if you're only going to shoot greenheads in Arizona, you're going to miss out on um, opportunity. Well, I, when I come down next year and we go duck hunting, don't be yelling hen on me when they come in. <laughs> oh, no. I, I want to see this Mexican duck thing in action. Yep. Once you get two, that's it. Oh, that's the limit. Two for a day. What so about you got to watch it. What about mallards? Well, mallards, you can get five, you know, five greenheads, but it's, it's okay. two hen mallards or Mexican-like ducks. So once you reach that two, if you got a hen and a is, Mexican... Is there any way to tell the difference when they're coming in? Um, I look for the bill straight off because okay. the Mexican ducks have the yellow bill, not the orange bill like um, okay. uh, hens do. So. Right. Okay. One of the key characteristics, so... Huh. Well, my eyes are... I'm, I'm getting old, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I don't know my eyes are that good anymore, but... So... With the, the whole waterfall tangent behind us, maybe. We'll, we'll get back to that, I'm sure. What brought me here, and besides Wade, uh, how many years have I told you someday I'm coming down to hunt? 
cruise. It's been a long, it's been a good five, at least five years, probably more than that. Yeah. And so. And you're always worried about, well, we can't really film that. They're going to be long shots, right? right. Yeah. That was always a concern. You'll never be able to see them. We'll have to put a little highlighted circle on the screen (laughs) and say, really, there's a deer there. And. So Wade assured me, it's like, no, it's, it's really not like that. And if you came down and did the archery over-the-counter thing, which is good for not just coos deer, and, and I'm calling them coos deer. They're, we're gonna, Jonathan's going to give us the history lesson of the name, but I'm going to say coos deer for right now. Very common. That's what most people call That's what everyone That's calls. what most people so call Don't send me an email and say, no, they're really cow's deer or cow steer or whatever so anyhow the idea of me coming down here was wade's like well you can hunt any antler deer with that over-the-counter tag and i know you're a tight wad cpa so i bet you you've already bought your hunting license yeah i had so why don't you come down and do that and pick up a javelina tag because there's always Always left. There's almost always leftovers in the unit to you. You have, and the nice yeah. thing about leftover tags, it doesn't affect your bonus points. Right. Maybe not with Havelina. I mean, how many bonus right. points do you need for Havelina? Right. But when you look at the the cows or coos whitetail, right. There's leftover tags in some units for those as well, and right. they don't affect your bonus points. Which so some you, of you, some of your high demand whitetail hunts here take a lot of bonus points for a non-resident. They do. So. So we had all that, and then you promised me that I'd be able to shoot Mern's quail. I, I, I promised you the opportunity to shoot Mern's quail. <laughs> you have to be able to hit the birds, right? Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll talk about that before we're done, too, because we, we, we went out to try to fulfill that promise today. But here, here's the deal coming up, folks. 2017, if you want to come and do what I just did this year, here's what I would suggest. You get, what, what is your big game? Well, you have two big game deadlines, really. You have your elk antelope one, which I think it's open for application. I know when this podcast goes up, your application period will be open, and the deadline is February 14th. 14th. Right. And so that's for elk and antelope. And Correct. you got to buy the non-resident hunting license to apply. So you've made that investment because you want to come and take part in the amazing elk antelope. And then in June, you've got your b- desert bighorn sheep draw and, and, draw and your deer draw. So if you want to apply for those four or any of those four or all four of them like I do, you're going to make the investment in a non-resident hunting license. And if you live in the snow world like I do in Montana, I'm a heck of a lot closer to the Canadian border than I am the Mexican border. I mean, anyone who studies geography quickly realizes that in January, you would far rather be where we're at right now. I have not had to wear a coat. Really? And how, where were we? We were 70. In the low I mean, 70s, 70s high 60s. Yeah, I mean, every day. Yeah, beautiful I, weather. I get up in the morning and there's no frost on anything. It's like <laughs> 46 degrees. It is funny, though, to stop at the coffee shop and see everyone bundled up when it's 46 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I, I look at, okay, I've already made that investment. And. I'm going to be this year for 2017 I, in the next 
week or so, I'm going to be doing my applications for elk and antelope. Just like, I don't know, how many non-resident applications you guys get for elk? I'd bet you it's in the tens of thousands. No, it's it's uh, it's the elk and antelope draw is actually one of the largest. Yeah, I would um, suspect so. I, I, I want to, it's definitely. I think it's pushing over two hundred thousand in terms re- of applicants, resident and non-resident. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, and I just yeah, anecdotally, because so many people watch our elk hunts that we've done in Arizona. It tells me how much demand there is for non-resident elk hunting in Arizona. And you guys do a remarkable job of balancing opportunity with quality. Uh, You guys do that with different season types, by weapon types, by, you know, rotating this season around to that unit and the next year it's in a different unit. And it's, well... There's a reason why there's that much demand for your elk hunting. Oh, and this year, folks, this is why you want to apply this year. If you have a lot of points, and all my buddies who have a lot of points are going to, they're going to get a hold of me and say, Newberg, shut your mouth. <laughs> but here's the deal if you're an elk hunter in 2017, Arizona rolled forward their calendar where season opens, I think, like five days later this year for archery elk which puts it in the absolute peak of the peak of the rut. And I'm not going to tell you what the moon cycle is then, but if you go look at a moon cycle calendar, you'll say, I need to be there. This is the year to burn my elk points in Arizona. So you, you got all these people, snowbirds, who probably are coming down here or could come down here who have these non-resident licenses. Why are they not doing what I've done in the last week? I think a lot of people just don't know the opportunities that are out here. I really, I really believe that. I mean, we look at in the Phoenix metropolitan area, we have a three hundred thousand person increase in snowbirds. Just in Phoenix. Just in the Phoenix. Not counting. I'm not talking Tucson, Casa Grande, and Tucson. Quartzite probably grows by double. Oh, absolutely. And it's in the middle of the desert, nowhere, you know? Right. And I think there's a lot of those people that just don't know that the opportunities are there for our our dove, our late season dove. Right. You know, the, the waterfowl. Yeah. The quail opportunities are there, and all the other small game opportunities that we have, too. Right. I mean, I, I think I honestly, I just don't think they know where to get started. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, the, the department is working on that. A lot of different avenues that we're trying to work on yeah. as far as introdu- bringing those people back into the, the hunting population. Right. Especially our winter, our winter visitors. I think there's a lot of opportunity there uh, where they can get out and enjoy why they came here. Right. right? To be yeah. outside during the the nice warm <laughs> yeah. January weather. Yeah, you came here to enjoy the January weather. Get out in it. So before we move too far away from this, though, for for the listener, um, you guys have a unique draw system. I you guys kind of wrote the book on a a uh, intricate system of bonus points and how you allocate non-resident tags. Now, I'm going to try my best to explain it. We have a video out there, and, and we're getting ready to post up another one about how the Arizona draw system works. But here's, here's kind of the gig. So Arizona has two pieces to its draw. It has what they call the bonus pass, and then it has what they call the one-two pass. 
and this is the quirkiness, a lot of states, they only look at your first choice. Some states look at all, like New Mexico looks at all three of your choices. Nevada, all five of your choices. Arizona lets you put in five choices, but in the first part of it, they only look at the first two, the first and second choice. And in this bonus pass, you guys kind of have a, it's almost like a preference point system rather than a bonus point system because 20% of the tags go into the first drawing. So the people with lots of points have, they're, they're really the only people in the, really in the running for those tags, right. especially the high demand tags. And so if you don't draw there, you get thrown over into the one-two pass, which is a true bonus point. So if you got six bonus points and someone has one, you've got a six times better chance of drawing. But doesn't mean you're going to draw. Just means you've 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 got six raffle tickets in the bucket, and they've got one. Is really the the best way to look at that. Right. And then from a non-resident standpoint, non-residents can get up to ten percent of the of the tags for any hunt. And then last year, you guys kind of split that baby a little further. We did. You you might have a different perspective. I think that's a good thing. I, 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 well, anyone who had lots of points is screaming and yelling, saying it was a terrible thing. So, but for all you people with a lot of points who are complaining about this, here, I'm just going to give you Randy Newberg's opinion on it. So they, they say, oh, they changed the system. All right. If you, let's say you got 20 points. That means you started in the system in 1996. Well, I started in your system in 1993 or 95. At that point, there was none of this bonus past where right. 20% of the tags went to the high point holders. So when you guys threw that in there, that was a huge benefit to me that I never really expected when I started buying Arizona points. That was like a gift from the heavens. <laughs> right? So when you guys tweak that a little bit, why should I be all mad about it when I'm still better off than when I started this process in 1996, let's say? So here, here's what we're talking about is in this bonus pass, they, when I first started, there was no bonus pass. It was just a true draw based on bonus points. Well, I think it was in like 2005 or six or seven, five or six, you guys said, we're going to put 20% of the tags to the highest point holders. And I lucked out and I drew an Arizona strip mule deer tag the first year you guys went to that system. I'm like, jackpot. Lucky me. I, I had no expectation of that when you guys, when I started into your system. Well, then two years ago, or last, last year was the first year of it, or was it two years ago? Last year, last I think. Year. Last year. The, you said, okay, we're still going to have that system, but no more than half of the non-resident cap, the, the 10% cap, can come out of that bonus pass. In other words, that almost preference point types thing. So now all the guys with loads of points who got this extra freebie that they never expected when they started this system started whining and complaining that the end, the, the world was coming to an end. 
they still get at least half of the non-resident quota thrown their way that when they started buying Arizona points, that wasn't how it worked. So they still got that as a bonus, but I guess it's like all things. Once you give something, good luck taking it away, right? <laughs> and it's not like you took it away. Anyhow, that, that, you, you asked me what I thought of it. Wait. Uh, absolutely. So. And, and for me, and, and, and I'm not an expert on that stuff, uh, even though I'm with the department, I'm not in the big game system or the draw system. But 5% gives those other people that opportunity to draw that tag where they wouldn't have that opportunity. Exactly. And so. that's what people forget. Right. You know, you might be, there. there's a little bit of that, but you still have that opportunity to draw in a random draw. Right. And where if, you didn't have that before. Right. And if you have 20 points, you, the odds are you got a way better chance of pulling that tag that's over in the random, in the in the bonus point draw. Absolutely. Way better than the guy who's got one or two points. So it, when I hear people whine about it, and there's guys out on our hunt talk forum who you'd swear it's the end of the earth. I almost get ready to delete <laughs> them from the forum. I'm like, <laughs> come on. This is, a, what do they call it? A first world problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the, this, right, is right. A, this is the definition of a first world problem. Right. But anyhow, that, your deadline's coming up. And if, you, if people are going to do this, apply by by the 14th and then they're going to have that license in hand so they can come and do all the other things we're going to talk about here little uh i guess additional point to this is since you guys changed that system there's these services out there that provide drawing odds and you guys really threw them a curveball I mean, like, <laughs> no one's been able to figure it out until this year. And the folks at the Go Hunt system that I was talking about at the beginning have figured out how your system works. And they've, they told me who they hired. And it's some, like, you know, the Charlie Daniels of the Abacus kind of statistician, <laughs> PhD sort of dude who he, he knows, or they, whatever firm it is, knows how to calculate this stuff. So the only st only service that really has super accurate draw odds for Arizona is gohunt.com with their insider service. And so when they posted those up two weeks ago, what the 2016 draw odds were, I went and compared them to all the other services that I subscribe to just because I want to see how things, each place is reporting them. I'm like, whoa. This is way, way different. So people, before you go and use one of these services that uses the little disclaimer, caution, these are just simple odds. Simple in that case means very incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> and the odds are you're not going to get the, the true stats that you want or the probabilities that you want. And uh, that's just the way it is so if you go to the gohunt.com use the the and subscribe to the drawing odds in the insider uh use promo code randy and and you're going to get it so that gets us to what i've been doing every morning for the last six days i have been hiking the hills here with bow in hand i cannot believe how many white-tailed deer i have seen i told you wade when we came down here i thought if i saw four or five a day, I'd really thought I had a banner day. I've been seeing 
70, 80, 100 deer a day. We've been seeing a lot of deer out there. It's Absolutely unbelievable how many deer we've been seeing. And if I could do it over again, I'd come later in a little January later, right? Because the rut is just starting to pick up a little bit. But this this tag I have, it's the over the counter. What do you guys call it? A non permit non permit tag. You don't have to apply through this the system to to right. draw. To I get went it. to Walmart and right. got absolutely. Mine. And all I had to do was show them my hunting license, and they're like, "Oh yeah, go archery hunting." And it's good for mule deer or whitetails. Yes. And but aren't some of these mule deer hunts? I think some of them open in December for this non-permit tag. Some of your northern yes. hunts up like I'm gonna th- I'm gonna get this wrong. So go to the regulations. Folks. Yeah, absolutely. Go to the regulations. Hey, look hey, at this stuff. Which units they are, but quite a few of the units up. Uh, I mean, obviously not Kaibab, obviously not the Strip, not any of your limited entry units. Um, but a lot of them that have tons of mule deer and some nice mule deer are open for this tag. And then down here, I, I, I'm just, why was I under the, the false premise that I wasn't going to see many deer? I, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. I don't know. I, I think we. I've always. There's a lot of deer. I think I've told you that over you the have. years. <laughs> I, maybe I just didn't trust you. I. I don't know. I. I got within 34 yards of one buck. Right. But I'm not allowed to shoot them in their bed for TV. It's against the production guidelines. So that was. Yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan's given the look like, well, you dumb. More, <laughs> why do you even produce TV if you got to deal with that kind of stuff? And then I got close to another one that, that when people see this, this is like amateur hour. Of, I am so embarrassed. I got within 28 yards. And how tall is the grass up there? What, three feet? Four? four? It's, it's tall this year for sure. Probably yeah. three feet. I mean, yeah. Three feet is a. And just, uh, suffice to say that when a, a a coos deer beds down, their head doesn't stick up three feet. Right. I'd say it sticks up about two feet. So when you're stalking down the hill in this really thick grass and you know the deer is there, don't give up on it. I got within 28 yards of where these deer were bedded in the grass and I couldn't see them. So I start talking at full volume to the camera. Well, I guess they must have got out of here. And as I'm doing that, the camera guy gets these big eyed look on his face. The deer stand up and run off right over my shoulder. Right exactly where they knew they were. We knew they were. So, oh well. That's, but uh, that's my problem. I, I'm, you guys ever sit water? Like yeah, I can't. I can't do it. I, I can't, I can't do it. either. Do you do it, Jonathan? Sometimes. Do you? Mm-hmm. How, how do you mentally get through that? Um, well, so this is the the thing. I mean, you know, the, the big game hunters have always been like, you know, oh, I don't know about small game hunting. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, I want to go sit by water, and I right. said, I do too. It's duck hunting. You know, and so I pretend it's like a duck hunt. And so I'll go sit next to the water and be like, okay, maybe there's a duck that'll come by. I don't know. But um, because everyone told me you are never going to kill one of these unless you sit over water. 
No, with, and with that's, a bow. Well, and so I'm sure, you know, Wade talked about, I don't know if you want to, about the doubling down on deer. The doubling down on deer. Right. All right. So with Arizona deer, you know, if you've applied. Right. Right. For, for Arizona. Yeah. Got your license. Yep, I do. We have the August September archery season. Yep, exactly. Which is over the counter. Yep. So you purchase purchase your over the counter license. Mm-hmm. You can hunt August and September. Right. In a number of units. Yep. Very early. Then again, you can come back in December. Right. And if you get a deer, then we we can oh, that's we right. could shoot yeah, a deer yeah. December thirty first. Come back and shoot another one and go January back down to Walmart first. and buy the next license because you can shoot one January first because we right. allow one deer per calendar year per calendar year. So right. the best thing to do is if you've done that because the draw hasn't even occurred yet. If you get right. him in January, you can still apply, put in for bonus points because the archery over the counter doesn't affect your points. Oh, and so now this year, right. this year yeah. we don't put in to actually go hunting. We just put in for bonus, right? And so if you put in for Arizona deer, you didn't get drawn. Yeah, and sometimes even if you did, but if you didn't get drawn, you can still come and over the counter archery hunt and still get a deer in Arizona, and it doesn't affect your points, right? And so the guys who are shooting in January, they get a deer, they're like, okay, cool, I'm still going to keep my points. Let me put in for bonus point only in the fall. Huh. How's that, huh? There's a trick. So that's for some you. serious opportunity right there. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm pretty sure you could kill one of these things over water a lot easier than me and a camera guy stumbling up and down. August, these. September is when it when it's really still warm, you know, and they're mm-hmm. really tuned into water at that point. Yeah, that seems to be a little bit easier this time of year when it's so cool. And we've been getting hammered with rain, right? You know, it's been as Wade and I are more than excited because it's raining quail. That's the way we, we talk about it. <laughs> All this winter rain means quail. <sighs> so, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, there's water kind of everywhere. It's cooler temperatures. They're not locked down to water, yeah. you know, and so you got to kind of change your strategy at that point. So, right. huh? Well, the other thing everyone told me that oh, I wouldn't go do that. You're going to run into all kinds of drug trafficking and illegal immigration and blah blah blah. I haven't seen any. We saw a lot more law enforcement, border patrol than we saw <laughs> illegals. Right? I, I mean, hundreds of times. I, I, I had no idea of. that many people work for customs slash border <laughs> patrol, but. No, it's not. It it's just been absolutely pleasurable in terms of wa- the the weather, oh. in terms of the number of deer. You can just if you're, and this is kind of a, a weird uh, contradiction. I have the patience to sit behind optics for hours on end, but I can't sit for a half hour in a in a blind over a water hole. <laughs> I mean, that, when you think about that, that's like that makes no sense, Randy. <laughs> but I sat behind those optics every morning, me and you some mornings right. and Jerry and yep. and the camera guys and we just uh, they are hard to see. I mean, they blend in. Well, it's like anything else when you're glassing though. You catch them in that sun and they just light up. Right. They just glow. Right. And, they, and whitetail are no different than these little cows. Whitetail are no different than elk. When yeah. they hit that sun, they, they shine. Yeah. And it's just a matter of having your glass at the right spot, right? At the right time. Yeah. And so let's, let's get into this, Jonathan. Before we turn this on, you were telling me the story of they're not coos deer. They are not cows deer. Cows deer. They are what? It's the correct per, f- 
French pronunciation of his last name is Kaus, like house. Kaus, dear. Kaus. There you so have you'll it, hear a folks. lot of people come back and go, oh, they're cows. No, that's not it either. That's not how you pronounce it. Um, uh, one, actually, a, a member of our department actually met uh, the grandson of uh, uh, Elliot Kaus and asked him, how do you pronounce your name? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, and we really want to know because of the deer. Right. And so, yeah, it was, it was cows. So, um, but, you know, it, and Wade and I don't get hung up on it either. It's, it's no. you know, it's coos. Right. That's the most common thing you'll hear. Um, but yeah, everyone tries to kind of go back and forth about it. And some people don't like the, when, when they're like cows, yeah, like, cause they just, I can't call a deer, a, uh, you know, a heifer, right. you know, <laughs> they don't like that, <laughs> that kind of pronunciation. So we're, I mean, generally we accept it in any form. Yeah. It's, we know what deer you're talking about, you know, right. cause according to Boone and Crockett, this is the only, um, really recognized subspecies of whitetail, whitetail right. regardless of all the other sites you see. Right. You know, there's like, oh, there's this whitetail and the Illinois whitetail and the right. Ohio. And, you know, you kind of go around and you go, according to Boone and Crockett, this is the only officially recognized. It's kind of like the same thing with the, the uh, mule deer right. where you have, you know, your, your mule deer and your blacktail. Yeah. It's those officially kind of recognized. Yeah. You know, we've always known, you know, the, that these were, you know, really special deer. Um, cause what I always like to say, you know, because of the much smaller stature is the best part about shooting a coos deer is, you know, as soon as you shoot it, you just pick it up, put it in your pocket and go home. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, I didn't get the chance to put one in my pocket and go home. I didn't get the chance to put one on my pack and go home. But, but the benefit of that is Wade, how many years have we been conspiring that we're going to go and hunt the Kaibab for meal there? Now, if I would have arrowed a buck this year, Jonathan just explained, you're only allowed one deer per calendar year. Right. So we would have had to done points this again, fall. Uh, again, points. So, yeah. so when the June draw comes along. We should be right there. We'll be right there. We, you and I both have a gunny sack full of points. We do. So we'll be hunting the Kaibab. We don't have enough for the late, late no. hunt, but that's all right. And... We can apply as a resident and a non-resident. Right. It's just subject. If if I get thrown out because the non-resident quota is filled, you get thrown out also. Right. right. So there is an upside about me <laughs> messing up some of these stocks that <laughs> we do get to burn our Arizona deer points this right. year. So further history lesson. Jonathan is like the walking history of at least this part of of the country's conservation story. Elliot Kaus, connect that to Merns, for which the Merns quail okay. is his name. So Elliot Kaus, or Coos, as I'll call him, um, his, <laughs> he had an original paper when he came to Arizona. An ori- the, original what? It was a scientific paper that he'd written Okay, um, called The Quadrupeds of Arizona. Like four-legged? The four-leggers. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote a, a fantastic paper called The Quadrupeds of Arizona. And he was the first one to physically describe uh, the coos deer. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, uh, 
biologists, there are some, but for the most part, you know, we're not so egocentric that we have to name it after ourselves. Okay. You've heard of like, you know. Politicians, they want to name everything oh, after yeah. themselves. But you know. Not, um, not biologist type. You've heard like, you know, Douglas fir tree or Miriam's turkey. Right. Or, you know, those kinds of things. They didn't name them after themselves. Other people right. name them in recognition of them. So Elliot writes his paper, Quadrupeds of Arizona, and describes this very early deer. Um, about, mm, it wasn't too long after, probably about two decades after um, his paper had come out, um, a, a, a surgeon who was a uh, officer in the United States Cavalry uh-huh. uh, was assigned to Fort Huachuca. So by the far southeast Arizona. Far southeast Arizona. Um, he uh, uh, worked with the cavalry still when we were having the Apache Wars mm-hmm. um, and came out, but he was a tremendous naturalist as well. And so there was two fort, two big forts in Arizona. One was, was Fort Huachuca, which is still there to this day, right. and Fort Whipple, which is, was right outside of what is now Prescott, and it's, it's all gone now. Okay. Um, but uh, so Edgar Murns, he, you know, he was an admirer of, of uh, uh, Elliot Coos, and so... When he came out here, he did an entire survey of the Mexican boundary states. He rode from, rode from Fort Whipple all the way to Deming, New Mexico, and back, and wrote down every single species that he ran across. Some he had to describe because they didn't have a name at the time or weren't well-known. Others were, and he would reference this, and he called it the Coos Deer. Based on that his respect of Elliot Coos because he knew of Elliot Coos's paper about this strange little deer. Okay. And so with his respect, he, you know, he, he really went out of his way to, to make sure that, you know, this was Elliot's deer. Okay. So this is, that's how the Coos deer got its name. Right. Even though we don't pronounce it correctly. Even though we don't pronounce it correctly today. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so, so, I mean, Ed, he was he was a a little bit of a contemporary. He was he was younger than than Elliot was, but um, you know knew of he knew he was coming to Arizona, and so any of the scientific community at the time were pretty well linked, right? You know, to each other. Yeah, they they knew each other. You know, and either in scientific works or whatnot. So, so how did it become the Mern's quail then? So, and that's a whole the whole other story because um, only Arizonans typically call it Mern's quail. What what do, what do you mean? Hold on. Why? So those who hunt in Arizona or from Arizona call it the Mern's quail. Right. Textbooks, science books, other other hunting books, you know, that have been written over the years. Uh-huh. Um, generally today call it the Montezuma quail. The Montezuma quail. Montezuma quail. Like after what is the Aztec or Incan chief? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I so remember but what. this this bird actually has some of the more has more common names than any of the other quail. Um, it's been known as Messina quail, fool's quail, harlequin quail, clown quail. Um, I mean, do they have a range that expands east and south? Or no. So there's a there's a small population in uh, West Texas. Okay. Um, they 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 kind of are broken apart across New Mexico as it comes in, and Arizona has the greatest abundance of in the United States has the greatest abundance of habitat, mm-hmm. and therefore 
greatest abundance of birds. Right. And then they also travel into into um, North Mexico. Right. Because um, they're a they're a sub neotropical bird. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as because they're you know they're not the same shape as most other quail species and stuff. So, huh. but in Arizona, that's our thing is we've always called a Mearns quail, and a lot of that comes from the biologist's great respect for Edgar Mearns because of his Mexican boundary survey. Okay, and 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 in that talking about that bird. So did he? he- he just identified it and said, the, this bird doesn't have a name, but here's what it looks like. Yeah, so he, you know, I mean, he would go through. And so um, I always say that, you know, the many names of, of the quail um, have to do with certain aspects. Um, it's a fool for its behavior. Uh, it's a hard. Oh, oh, hold on. No, I'm not buying <laughs> that. I, they, they fooled me. They schooled me. They humbled me today. Yep. Anyone who calls that a fool a quail? Is a fool. Well, then you're calling Jack O'Connor a fool. Well, I, I, <laughs> with all due respect to the long since departed Jack O'Connor, sure, he must have found some that had uh, got drugged up or something. No, what's what's really fascinating about, and, and that's why he would call him. I mean, the the name fool was really a behavioral thing. And it wasn't until, you know, a little bit after when we'd been hunting them quite a while that we kind of understood why they would behave the way they do. Their only predator ever came from the sky. Right. Hawks. Right. Um, because we weren't hunting. I mean, they were kind of maybe intermittently ran into in, you know, prior to 1960, but we didn't have a season on Mern's quail. Oh, really? Until 1960. The history of Mern's quail, it, there's people who are alive who were still on the first hunt. <laughs> you know, um, and that's an absolutely phenomenal story, wow. yeah. um, which I could tell you because how, you know, who knows how we started to learn how to hunt rough grouse or how we learned how to hunt chucker or, you know, I mean, right. like a lot of these things are lost, but the people who were here and did it and what taught us how to hunt them uh, are still alive. So that's, it's kind of a very interesting story. But um, when you, when you look at that idea that their predators only came from the air, they, they know there's predators. And so the first thing they do is they turtle. Yeah. They lay down, they tuck their head, yeah. and they wait because they're very cryptic. Yeah. I mean, you've seen them. Yeah. Or actually not seen them until they actually flush. Because <laughs> when they're on the ground, they're, they're, they van- they're right in front of you. You're almost stepping on them, and they're not there. I stepped over one today, yeah. and the dog came along behind me, and I had walked over where this bird was. The camera guy walked over where this bird was, and I see the dog sniffing. I'm like, well, it can't be there. We just stepped there. Wrong. Wrong. Yeah. That, uh, what do you call it? Turtled? That that bird yeah. was turtled in like... <laughs> I, 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 I'm at a loss for how I could have lifted my foot over a bird I was chasing. And how far away were you from that bird when it went up? Five feet, maybe? And it got away. It got away. It got away. It's, I mean, it's, it's just that, about took my hat yeah, off. You're so surprised. You're yeah. so surprised yeah. by these birds yeah. when they come up. So a fool then. So they, they, learned, just, they learned to hold really, really right. tight. If you can't see me, I don't get eaten. Right. And, and you can't see them in that yeah. cover. And that's, and it especially is as brightly colored as the bird is, you know, particularly the male. But if you, if you look at those birds, look at their backs, right. You know, that's where the least amount of colored um, right. feathers are, but it's, it's got this beautiful pattern on these oh, feathers. Fly tires love them. Yeah. Love those feathers to tie wet flies, you know? Yeah. Um, but it really blends them in 
to the environment that they're in. I mean, you can't see them in grass. It's just, it's hard. And so they learn to do that with dogs. And so Jack would ride around on a horse and these quail would come out into the pathway and, you know, the horse was coming and they're like, oh no, there's danger. And they would lay down Mm -hmm. and sit in open ground where he could see them. Right. And he's like... Well, these stupid fool, you know, I mean, like it's, it's just, you're acting foolish. Why would you do that? Just, you right. know, hide in plain sight. Yeah. But they could. Right. You know, and so everyone was like, oh, they're, you know, they're just foolish for their behavior. So they started calling fools quail. Huh. Well, I'm not buying it. He, <laughs> Jack could call him whatever he wanted, but, oh, gosh. It, it was a ton of fun to go do that today. And, and throughout the week, so a little side note to this is, my buddy Jerry Pritchard came out and my uncle Larry Stickler came down from Scottsdale. And Wade, you took them Merns hunting two days. Two afternoons. Right. Two afternoons. And you guys stacked them up. We did really well. And then you brought me this afternoon. <laughs> and I don't know. In what, the same area. Something was different. Well, I, well, part of that is because you guys had ta- hauled a couple gunny sacks of them <laughs> out of there that was earlier in the week. <laughs> But uh, the just the the quality of what they tasted. We we grilled them last night. Oh, they were really good. I was like, why have I not been Mern's quail? <laughs> I, I've shot Gamble's quail. I've shot scaled quail. I've I've never shot a Mern's quail until today. Today until today, I I got one. And the first of Jonathan, you should have seen it. The dog made this beautiful point. And Wade's like, get up here, get up here. She's ready. And he lets the dog in there. And they just, it's like a dozen fireworks taking off. I call them UFOs, not unidentified flying objects, flushing objects. Because they go so fast that I I don't know how something can go that (laughs) far that fast. You think they would pass out from the G-forces that it has to create. <laughs> but, I, I mean, that thing, it's like it got hit by lightning. It just, boom, crashed. And I'm like, I'm one for one. I'm kind of <laughs> chucking and jiving and dancing out there. Yeah, this is, ain't nothing in this Merns quail stuff. Well, that was the last one I hit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the last one. Oh, that, that was pitiful, Wade. That was a tough. That was very tough to watch the dog make that point like that in uh, wide open country. I'm, the bird flying straight away. I think you shot twice because you're shooting an over and under a pointer, right? Yeah. And then I'm I'm shooting a, a pump, yep. and I shot three times at it. Fly yeah. it straight away. Straight away. And it's on camera, so we can't yeah. lie about yeah. it, right? <laughs> but I've concluded <laughs> I, on the walk out. We we put. I, I mean, we walked like. I don't know, 33 miles or something this afternoon, a lot. <laughs> but here's, here's what happened, Jonathan. My ammo, when it leaves my barrel, is only going at 1,200 feet per second. <laughs> it couldn't catch up with it when oh, it flew straight away. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you what. So at, at least that happened to you yeah. because... You, so, you guys were out Merns So hunting. we were Merns hunting as well, yeah. yeah. So we had big groups and stuff. Well... What usually what will happen is that yeah you got the the one big fat bird yeah that flies straight away and open got, like it's just a beautiful thing and you guys like you're shooting you miss it you're like uh, how did that happen right. well so we have the flip side of that we got a, a, a few guys 
like dogs on point birds comes up and that big fat one lights up you know and you got an entire covey right. there was probably eight or ten in the sky except that one big fat one who's flying straight away in open country and everybody shoots that, that one oh. and hits it and turns it into a bag of jelly. You're like, well, this one's going to be a little hard to eat. <laughs> like, couldn't we have just picked all different birds? No, we all have to go for that one, you know? Because you know that one, I mean, that's the thing is that one is probably definitely, you know, like the big rooster, yeah, you know, or something like, so you're like going, oh my gosh, you know, it's it's perfect because you can identify them, you know, once you're doing Mern's Quail hunting long enough, you can identify on the flush right. which ones are, are which. Yeah. So you know, you're like, oh, there's the roosters, right? Because we work on trying to do that. Like we're just trying to all shoot the roosters and stuff. So oh, right. you um, guys are better than I am. Yeah. Well, and 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 that's you know because we want you know let's leave right. all the hens on the ground. But exactly. Mern's quail have a unique feature um, in terms of when they nest, they do produce more males than females always. Really? Yeah. It's a survival strategy. It's a life strategy. Right. Sure. And so guys really like that because they shoot a bunch of rooster. You know, if they, if they have no experience, no training whatsoever, odds are pretty good. It's in their favor that they're going to get some roosters. Right. And yeah, so they have fear, that great, right? you know, that, that great tailgate shot. So, huh. Well, I think I pulled that line on you today, didn't you I? You did. You, you laid a heavy duty guilt trip on Yeah, me. I shot only the males. I was just uh, waiting for the males. So. Yeah. Yeah, part of, he's a game hog. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's like, he, he says, no, when the dog gets ready, I'm going to send her up there and you just got to find these shooting lanes. Sure. Well, he puts me off to the side. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he walks right up behind the dog. And, and it's not like the quail fly straight off to the side because sure. they're in their such thick brush. They go straight away to start with and then they start doing this dive bombing stuff. He puts me over to the side and I got to try swing on these things. <laughs> I only shot today. I only shot four times. So one out of four. Not bad. That's, that's, that's good shooting. Not bad. No, no. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. But I bet you if I had to shoot another three or four times, I would have been one out of seven or eight. Yeah. Probably. But. Well, I, it's, it's not too bad. I mean, that's like I said, remember we talked about this one out of, it's one in five shells to shoot a dove. That's the average. Oh, I whooped that in Yuma when we were over there. <laughs> but you guys said I was, I was. Uh, You're high grading. Yeah, I was being too particular. <laughs> My shots, like anything past twenty yards, I wouldn't shoot. Sure. So, <laughs> but no, that was a ton of fun. In the country they fun. live in, beautiful people would. When people see this episode, they're not going to believe there are such huge rolling grasslands and oak canyons and and other stuff in Arizona. It does not look like. No, Arizona. and and we've always talked about that. You know, the the first time you come for Mern's quail, because it it really it, of all the quail species in the United States, this is the trophy bird. Is it? This is because of their rarity and how hard they are to yeah. Find? It, they're the perfect bird dog bird mm -hmm. because of you've seen how how tight they hold, oh. and it's fantastic when you have a dog that knows how to work Mern's quail. Because you don't want the big wide ranger, you know, just covering every inch of ground. Like you want the the, the dog who's working a little close has a really it's it's a really acute nose that works it. You know, and Wade's dog is is a lot of the guys who run the 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 Merns dogs. Man, you know when you're behind a really good dog, and yeah. they just the the trophy birds. So the very first time you come, it's for the birds because you see them and you're like, ah, I gotta go get those, and you're gonna come back every other time for the country yeah 
You know, you literally are. It's I, just I, the, I the country is so amazing. You're like, I don't even care if I shoot birds. Yeah. I just like watching the dog run around, maybe flush a few, and just be out here in this 60, 70 degree weather in beautiful oak savanna grasslands you know, and hillsides and stuff, you're like, this is just tremendous. It, and it people striking. come from everywhere. We yeah. ran into people from New Jersey. Right. He has killed every other quail species except for the um, Merns quail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he said he was here for a month if that's what it took. To that's what it took. Yeah. Crazy. But Arizona isn't just Merns quail. No. Oh, I, no. I've shot <laughs> a lot. Is it gamble or gambles? Gambles. What are they now? I've, I, I, I'm going to fess up right now that when I see a gambles quail on the ground, I polax them. <laughs> I, I have zero. The way that those things run and go through the cactus and drag you up and down, I, I, I have no sympathy for them. And they are really good eating. So, folks, just in the sake of full disclosure and honesty, I will shoot them on the ground. You couldn't do that with the Merns because you can't see them. Not very often. If you did, they're close enough that you wouldn't have much left. Right, you could could squish them with your foot. (laughs) So some years you'll have great Merns populations, some years great gambles. We've had some differences in precipitation and habitats and... What's it's it, most of it's tied to precipitation patterns, and uh, you know, Merns. I we've had probably since what 2013, Jonathan. Last three years have been p- pretty dang good, uh, pretty high harvest rates on on Merns quail, mm-hmm. Gambles quail, and Scale quails. Have numbers have been down significantly, and so Merns quail they rely on the on the summer moisture, okay, the monsoon moisture, and kind of and you have to have fairly mild winters. They do. They do. They don't tolerate freeze as much as say, a gambles quail. Okay. Uh, and then our gambles quail, they have precip- you know, their precipitation pattern. They rely on are those those winter months, December, January, February. February is kind of the key. Those three months are really the key for moisture. For moisture. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, scale quail. There's a little bit of debate about that, uh, but they tend they tend to what we've what we've seen in the research stuff is they'll take advantage of both. Okay. Uh, but that that's not a, hasn't been real defined. I mean, Jonathan's Jonathan's the one that keys in on this research stuff. He really understands a lot of what goes on with these birds, and and I don't know if you got a scientific a photographic so, memory this man has. But. Yes, and photogenic. <laughs> it's not quite photographic, but, <laughs> but so um, yeah, scale quail on on the the on the whole breeding wise are exactly six weeks behind gambles okay okay um arizona has a unique weather pattern weather phenomenon Mm -hmm. where it's it's called bimodal bimodal weather pattern meaning we have winter precip Mm -hmm. we go into the spring and it is the driest i mean the driest part of our entire year Mm -hmm. when you go into spring april may june the April showers bring May flowers ain't happening in Arizona. Right, okay. Right? And then we come in in July, and it starts the monsoons. Yeah. And we get a lot of rain, and then the, the, the fall gets a little bit. It's not as dry as the spring. So the skilled quail who are here are kind of in a bind between winter and summer because they're behind, behind gambles just by about six weeks, and it puts them right in the springtime 
when it's real dry. Okay. And so sometimes scale quail will go early in terms of their breeding if we've had a really robust winter and it's extended a little while, things are in good condition. They're like, okay, let's put down a nest. You know, everything's yeah. good. And sometimes it's like not quite the full winter we had. So we're just going to hang out and wait and see what happens. And then the summer monsoons come and then they can kind of respond to that. Huh. So... Wow. And some do, and, and this year, I mean, a lot of the more recent years, because of our, how strange the weather has been, we've had like part of them go in the winter, <laughs> part of them go in the summer, and you're like going, what yeah. are you guys doing? Like, you know, they, they just, you can't figure it out because you'll, you'll find chicks. We've had mixed right. cubbies where you have an adult and you have like these really old chicks and you have these really like bumblebees. And you're like, <laughs> what happened here? Like, you know. And we had, to, with our gambles this year, uh, our, our our precipitation patterns were really spotty and, and kind of spread out. And so we saw a lot of uh, just spread out hatches. Mm-hmm. We had mm-hmm. birds that we that we checked at a check station that were born in September, yep. which is really? not, not common, but that's right. just how they tried to key. They're trying to make it work. Right. And it just, they don't have very high success. So they don't have that concentration of winter precipitation. They'll still reproduce. They'll still have birds, but they're scattered, and it's just not as successful. But we saw our first chicks this year as well for gambles. Perhaps. Almost, it, it was the end of March, like March 25th. Our first wow. clutches were hatching. Huh. And so there's really elongated hatch period. And so it's, you know, and it, and it tends to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a, a typical uh, bird thing anyway it's not like it's not like the elk where they all drop within a couple hours of each other pronghorn you know it's like they don't sync up that well yeah and so you get that that peak of the hatch sometimes is very abrupt and sharp and like boom they all hit the ground or you know these ones kind of get stretched out and it rounds out the top and you get early and it it really rises in the middle you do see a lot more and then it tapers off after that but huh but people well, do have a short memory as far as our our merns pop, especially our merns, because it's such right. a localized uh, bird. Well, the the uh, Arizona Game and Fish logo is a gambles quail, a little curly Q on it. Absolutely. Head. Why is that? You know, it's it's such a it's such an because someone made that decision and. Well, it's an adapt. It's, it's, it's an iconic of what our desert bird quail species is. It's it's the gambles quail. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, and we take it, it, I mean, gambles to to merns and square scaled is some huge ratio. Uh, yeah, the gambles is vastly the most hunted in Arizona. It's the number one species. Okay. But I can tell you, it's on the logo because it's cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> it we've changed the logo over the years. Yeah, but it's always been around, centered around the quail. Yeah, I mean, they are beautiful. They are, and we I take mean, them for granted because we. We see them a lot, right? right. They're very centered yeah. to where we're at, where we yeah. live in Arizona. And so we do take them for granted. They're uh, so beautiful. And they are a beautiful, they, beautiful bird. like this purplish blue with these white patches and these brown and black patches. And when you hold, it's like every bird. You hold it in the sun, it's got every possible color you could think of. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and the nice thing about gambles, you don't have to have a dog. You right. can get them without, and that... And that's kind of what separates the merns from the other the other birds, right? You, 
it's kind of a specialized deal. You just can't hardly do it without a dog. But right. gambles, anybody can hunt a gambles coil. Right. You know, because they're they're accessible to the foot hunter. I was, in, I was in college without a dog, and I had a 28-inch long tom full choke barrel on my 12-gauge <laughs> that I brought from, from Minnesota when I used to shoot rough grouse on the stump. Right, and right. And even I shot gamble coil. A starving yeah. college student Absolutely. could go outside of Phoenix and... Oh, they're good eating. Huh. And they're fun. And when you get yeah. in, when the populations are up, they're a fun, fun bird to hunt. And, and, and it, I wouldn't shoot them on the ground if I have a dog, but I'll shoot them on the ground if I don't have a dog. Okay. <laughs> and the way they call. I mean, I remember the first time it was you or Jerry had this little, put it in your mouth, little slat of wood. Right. <laughs> and you blew on that thing, made some noise. I'm like, what is that? Is it Campbell's? Coil call. Yes, absolutely. And those things will respond to that. When 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 you scatter the flock or the covey, right. they start yeah, I can't even make the sound. It sounds like it and, you'll know it. Right. And 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 it's really good if you're up early in the morning because that's when they tend to call the most is when they're coming off their roost mm -hmm. or when they're going on to the roost in the evening and then when they're split up. But those are the kind the times you can locate birds if you are if you get out early enough, you can catch them coming off the roost and they're making a lot, a lot more noise when they come off the roost. So I've never had a quail that wasn't delicious. Probably never will. The quail you get in restaurants, what are those? Some sort of... Farm-raised bobwhites. Is that what they are? Yep. Okay. I didn't know if they're some sort of guinea hen or what they were. I don't ever <laughs> order. I I never order wild game on a menu. No. Nope. It just is like it's not wild game if it's yeah. on a menu. It's it's illegal in this country to sell wild game. But anyhow, I boy, I, between doves and quail, that two years I went to college here. I ate a I, lot of them. Huh? Oh man, I, I'm not sure <laughs> what I would have done if it was not for the bounty of the landscape and what I was able to to shoot. And that, though, that, the funny part is, so that was in 1984 and 85. All that opportunity is still here today. It is. It's, and accessible, right? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, accessible. So now I'm going to get to another part. We had Al Iden come and join us, and he's your uh, access landowner habitat. He he's wears a lot of hats. He does wear department. a lot of hats. He does wear a lot of hats. And people always email us and say, Randy, where were you hunting? And out of respect to other people who hunt in, in that unit or whatever, we never tell them what unit we're hunting in. Well... We're interviewing Al, and he gives the website of where people can find all these places we've been hunting. Like the when we went and did the the dove hunt down in Yuma, mm -hmm. that I call it VPA. I'm sure it's it is got, VPA, Voluntary Public Access okay. Program. And, it's, and it's, he he had he gave us the website, and now I I can't remember what it is. It's like Arizona. Recreational access, map Arizona Recreation Access, something dot com. Anyhow, I'll, we'll we'll put it in the pod podcast description or something. But so it tells where all these properties are for all four and a half million acres of it. Right, right. That's a lot of ground that you guys have opened up to hunting. Four and a half million acres. That's that's not like 
<laughs> and that, itty that's, bitty. On, that's on top of the, the 60% of the state that's, that's BLM pub, public land. Right? And some of that four and a half, four and a half million is access routes into right. those would, public lands. It if, wouldn't have been. if the landowner didn't open that up, right. you wouldn't get to that public right. land. And that's, so, a, that's a farm bill program. Right, that he that helps fund that. Right, and he went into great detail of of how it is, and it's for me, it's amazing because two years ago we filmed Jerry. You and we I, did. we did, absolutely. We people are like, where were you at? Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what unit, but we were hunting in this. I think that ranch is what forty thousand acres. Forty thousand acres of checkerboard, private and state and state land, and state through land. this access program, it's all open to hunting. It's all if, open if you draw that. And the beautiful tag. thing about that ranch, on that's a lot of those access dollars. The rancher chose to put those onto the ground for habitat projects. Right. So the department would go out and we secure access through funding, right. which with your application fee when you'd buy a license through Arizona. You a dollar of that goes to access. Just one dollar. One dollar per the th- for the three out of the three right. for the application fee. Oh, I got you. Right, uh, right, the app- right. Not the license. Fee, no, the just the application fee. Gotcha. And uh, uh, I forget where I was going with that, but uh, well, the habitat. Oh, the habitat part, of that, and that's a huge part of what it is because we build these relationships with the landowner, and they open up these access. Yeah. Uh, you know, for a fee, and then they take the money that that we pay them for access and they'll put it onto the ground for habitat. And those are the partnerships and the relationships that we build. And a lot of that is, is built on the relationships or the interaction those, those landowners have had with hunters in the field. Mm -hmm. And if they run into respectful, ethical hunters, they have a more, they're more, they're more apt to, to allow that access or, or work with the game and fish to build access and habitat to support more, more of what we enjoy doing. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's a great program and it's one of those things that, that's coming up in the future that uh, hopefully gets a lot of attention and hopefully gets a lot of support from the people that listen to your show yeah. and, and support that farm bill action. It's kind of, I think we've got two years. Two, two years left outside. And, and it's, it's one of those things that it does so much good and, yeah. uh, and, it needs to be supported, and I hope that that message resonates. So we got two years to get it out there and, and let people know how important that program is. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, I always feel like, why am I telling people about this? Because now they're going to see, oh, that isn't a unit that has a difficult access <laughs> issue. I think I'll apply there. But right. I, I apologize that I can't remember that it's AZ or ArizonaAccessMap.com or something like that. I'll put Man. it in the, the, I'll get it on the on the podcast description. He, he gave it to us and it was only two days ago. I already spaced it out. Recreation but, AZ or AZ Recreation. Yeah, you're, something. and I, you think I would know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it just. But, but I tend to know most of the places that are open, right? I don't, right. I don't need to key on that as much right, as other people. You don't need to go do. to the website. Right. But uh, the, the point of all that being is that for the non-resident, there's two big concerns they have. Can I get a tag? And if I can get a tag, do I have a place to hunt? Well, you guys have so much public land in Arizona that having a place to hunt isn't that big of a deal. But there are some units, there are some species, there are some other things that this four and a half million acres is critical to, to that opportunity. 
Just like when we were dove hunting, right? I mean, gosh. Well, and the other thing that's is in southern Arizona, which is, it's it's all something we're always going to struggle with, just because of the pattern of land ownership in Arizona. I mean, in southern Arizona, we have these sky islands, right? And the sky is public, public land, but most of the ownership pattern around that is private land, and so we there there has been some tendencies to lock those up. And what that does is it really separates the public from the public land. Right. And that's that's the key example of what these access programs are really targeting. Right. When you say sky islands, you mean these isolated mountain ranges right, that right, are very right. high, wonderful habitat, huge diversity. They're absolutely. They're mostly public land. Yep, mostly yeah. public land, so. Well, I I hope that program continues. And if spilling the beans and and telling everybody to go there and look at it, lessens my chance of drawing a tag you know what i'm good with that there's lots of room out here there is there's lots of room i i I did not see another archery hunter you did no we didn't did we in in six days of hunting coos deer we did see the javelina hunters we saw the javelina but they were not chasing the coos deer so I bought this. This is going to be, I mean, this is almost like confession now. Have you hunted Javelin and Jonathan? Oh, yeah. I shot, they, my, uh, shot my first are they trophy Javelina last year. Okay. Well, I, I've always been of the impression, everyone tells me, oh, they're just a bunch of stupid stink pigs, blah, blah, blah. They can't see anything. Oh, they got a really good nose, and they can hear really good, but they can't see anything. Well, you know what? If you're rifle hunting, that's fine and dandy. But when you're walking around in these canyons with these crazy swirling thermals doing whatever they do uh, in this country, and you and a camera guy are trying to sneak up on them, the closest I got was 40 yards. I, 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 because of the reputation that they're just such a dumb animal and so easy to kill, it, there's a part of me that feels humiliated, <laughs> but s- seeing you know squaring off with them, sharp string or, or sharp stick on a string, I, I I don't think they're like this stupid, dumb, you know, trash animal. Uh, I don't. Well, and, and you, to the bow hunter, which yeah. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you explained a lot of that to me and how the thermals work in those canyon countries. And, you know, uh, the time that I've been around Havilene and been up close to them, it's been in the flat country. Right. So when you start talking about the thermal lift and the swirls and the wind, now I have a little better picture of that. Yeah. Right? I mean, the flat country, you're just not going to have that that oh. type of wind. You, you oh. can choose your direction and go into it, right? right. And with an animal that's primary sense is its smell. That that I I was wishing I was out in that flat desert. Right, country. right, right. Okay, I saw him. I know which way the wind's blowing. It's gonna blow that way all day. I think I'll just get in front of him and head him off. Right. Oh, I. But it was a ton of fun. Yeah. So you're glassing for all these deer, and all of a sudden you see these little gray and black objects rooting around. I, I don't know what they're doing underneath those trees. I mean, they're pawing and they're scraping, and is that feeding activity? Yeah, they're rooting. Um, generally, they they eat roots. 
Okay. That's one of their, or they'll eat cactus pads or whatever. Yeah, so um, some of that. But yeah. You know, when we're glassing for javelina, so you're focused on it. You were yeah. focused on deer and just happens to see javelina. Right. We're, when we focus on javelina, you know, we're looking across the landscape. A lot of things start looking like javelinas. <sighs> and, so, and so we call them J-Lo's. <laughs> Javelina-like objects. <laughs> There's a lot of those out in that and so, spot. Yeah, so you're like, oh, I got a J-Lo. Uh, no, that's not one. You know? <laughs> well, we but did, they are usually they are they are actually very tasty. Um, oh, and this is coming from Jonathan, who won the inaugural Yuma, Arizona Dove Cook Off. Who enters squirrel cook-offs? You travel the country doing squirrel going to Arkansas, yeah, every year. And so, if you say it's edible, I'm I'm going with you. Here's here's the problem. There's people who love them and hate them, okay. and it's about a fifty fifty line. And I think what happens with the people who hate them, it can be pretty warm right. in this javelina season, right? January February. And what I think happens a lot of times is is people don't treat that with enough respect. Yeah, it feels cool. It's still pretty warm. No, and yeah, so if you got a ton of hide so on you. Well, they'll shoot a, a javelina, and they're like, okay, cool. And then they'll throw it on their pack, and they'll drag it out, and they'll throw it in the bed of the truck, and they got to go drive back to camp, and then they're taking photos of it, and you know whatever. And so it sits in its own skin far too long. You know, gotcha. this isn't Minnesota where it's cold. Right. Like you need to get that hide off and get it get it field dressed immediately. Yeah. And then when they're field dressed, and I think the other problem is they have a very strong scent gland. Right. You know, which you, when you're close to them, I mean, you can tell. And I think people take too many liberties about, you know, putting their hands on the outside of the hide where that oil is at to spread their scent. Right. And then moving in when, when they're skinning it out to touching the meat with it then. Oh, okay. So and they so get I, that oil on the meat. Yeah. And so th- that can cause a problem because the smell, I mean, you eat, you eat partially with your nose. Right. Yep. And so that's part of it. And then the third aspect is to think that you take a javelina and throw it on a hot grill and cook it real fast. No. No, no, that that's, it's going to taste like the bottom of your shoe. Okay. You know, I mean, you start doing that. They they really are a nice low and slow. They work well like pork mm-hmm. on that low and slow kind of time frame um, and make a lot of different. Most guys just take it. They're like, ah, oh, let's just grind it all, turn it into sausage. Right. right. You know, I, I usually hear chorizo. Yeah. They drown it in spices and cook it into submission. <laughs> it becomes, you know? becomes a spice delivery platform sure that's pretty much all it is but no there's a lot of great uses for it um uh, but yeah the low and slow techniques really work well for it i I, i'm uh, next year i I think it's gonna require two weeks not a week i i will mix in some merns hunting if you're willing to bring your wonderful dog absolutely I am going. I'm going waterfall hunting with Jonathan. You need to. I, I, yeah. I have never shot some. I've never shot a Mexican duck. You you showed me pictures of all kinds of other crazy things. I thought you'd been hunting at the zoo or something. It looked <laughs> like some of them had more colors than a parakeet. Oh, someone told me you guys have thick-billed parakeets here. Okay, thick-billed parrots. Parrots. Yeah, yeah they actually yeah. used to be a, a resident of Southern Arizona down here in these Sky Islands. Really? Um, yeah, we, we've tried some programs to try and reintroduce them again. Um, mm-hmm. Haven't been incredibly successful with it. But um, the the one thing that I'll tell you is when you move from the Skylands to the Mogollon Rim, right? Which, which means is between, you're moving north. You're, you're moving north, north of Phoenix between once you get Phoenix to the rim. And, and Flagstaff, yeah. that huge Colorado right. Plateau face. Yeah. When you find 
um, Apache pine or Chihuahuan pines in the middle of this ponderosa pine forest. Yeah. Because that's all, the mo- I mean, it's the largest, most contiguous ponderosa pine forest in the world. Right. But occasionally there'll be a Chihuahuan pine or an Apache pine in the middle of the, all this. And you're like, where did that come from? The parrots dropped it. The parrots, had, they'd eaten the seeds yeah. out of the cones and deposited it because that was their migration path. They would, they would leave this, the Skylands of the South and migrate to the, the uh, Mogollon Rim. Huh. Wow. Well, I didn't plan on seeing one because I didn't even know they existed here until <laughs> somebody told me. Some was trying to remember who told me that. But anyhow, and then you, there, you guys have these other little ringtail looking things here. I've been looking for one. I never saw another quaddy. Quaddy Quaddy Mondays. Quaddy Mondays. Quaddy yeah. Mondays. So, what, I, I I had to go online to see what they looked like even. Darwin's grab bag. <laughs> uh, what, what do they do? They, they look like part raccoon, part monkey, part squirrel, part... <laughs> what, what's the deal there? Are, they, Pretty, yeah. are, are there a lot of them here? I yeah. didn't oh, see Oh, actually, one. yeah. Um, it, so the interesting thing is big groups of them are typically the females, the sub-adult males, mm-hmm. and the offspring. Yeah, and they'll get in actually very large groups. I mean, we've seen, we've seen, uh, and they're called troops when they're all together. Yeah, like a you know, it's a troop, um, and uh, we've seen them as large as uh, two to three hundred, um, moving across the landscape, and that, that's pretty unusual to get that large. But they have gotten to that size before. Um, usually, the males, the adult males, are solitary. Yeah. Okay, and so um, yeah, they're just they're another species that you know. It, we share with Mexico mm-hmm. that exists here, and actually their range has been spreading north. We uh, we have them up as far as the Mogollon Rim now. Um, they are that far up north. Um, usually hang out riparian canyons, um, things like that. They uh, you know root around, grub around, and stuff, and yeah. they climb trees. And when they walk through the the grass, they have their tails up, and it, it's curled over, so it looks like a prehensile monkey tail. Yeah. And so I get a lot of phone calls about guys going, "I saw those monkeys on the on the border," and I'm like, "Oh no, it's okay." And then they'll show up on trail cams, and guys want to guys want to know what the heck is on their trail cam. They're like, "This weird critter is out there," and huh. they're like, "What is this?" Well, and, I was just wanting to see one. I, I didn't. Is there a season on them? Yes. Okay. Are September they edible? through March? Are they edible? They are. You can eat them. Well, um, if Jonathan gives that, well, <laughs> if you want to, kind of look. Well, it's I, it's pretty much the the reason why most folks will take a uh, Coda Monday um, is for taxidermy purposes. Yeah. You know, they generally get one because you're allowed one per year. Right. Um, just like deer in that yeah. that confined season and and. Uh, most often, I think the, the frustrating part that I hear from taxidermists and all that stuff as well is it's usually a deer hunter. Oh, and, puts a and, and it's in. the rifle, right. And they're <laughs> shooting like a .30-06. And this is a really thin-skinned animal. Huh. And so when that .30-06 hits them, man, it opens them up. You yeah. know, I mean, this is something you probably want to shoot with some smaller caliber, one of the twenty two right. calibers, you know, centerfire or rimfire. Yeah. Um, to, to do it justice, to not have, you know, the taxidermist, you know, repairing everything, so. Yeah. Huh. Well, I think it's going to require two weeks next year. And I am going to spot and stock and get an arrow in a Coos White. Team. You were close. I was close. And, and close. I, we had some other stocks. That we had a lot of stocks. Every day I had one or two stocks. And 
some of them just, I didn't get that close. I'd get 90 yards or 100 yards. What it did show me is that these guys who've told me, oh, you better have a rifle that can shoot 600 yards or don't even bother going coos deer hunting, I say horse hockey. I, I don't buy that. I mean, I can see where maybe that's what someone wants to do because right. at least in the mountains I was hunting them, there's some canyons that would be long shots if you wanted to shoot across from them. But I, I wouldn't have anyone be discouraged because they only have a 308 or a 30-06 or a, no. a 257 Roberts no. or whatever. It's, well, and of course, you're seeing them at the kind of the beginning stages of the rut as well. Right. And, and that's when animals generally tend to get a lot more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They make a lot of stupid decisions. Yeah. Um, particularly Coos Whitetail, who earlier in the season, the, they, they've earned the name the Grey Ghost. Yeah. For, for a reason. No, oh, I and can when see it's, that. It's that earlier rifle seasons and stuff. You know, the big boys really know how to hide. Yeah. You'll see a lot of the spikes and forks and stuff and, and that kind of stuff, but the real big boys, the ones over 100 inches, 110, 120, even the 130 inches. Yeah. Man, it's, you know, um, they know how to hide yeah. and get away from you and everything. But then when the rut starts coming on, you know, oh, we're chasing girls. <laughs> like, <laughs> I could care less what's going on, you know? Yeah, they well, expose themselves a little more. It, it's, I, again, schedule-wise, I'm coming later next time. Because you're you're right, Jonathan. There were, there was a little bit of rutting activity going on. You'd see the occasional young buck that was acting a fool, and I just think that it would be well when you're going to spot and stock. If you if you uh, forsake sitting at a water hole, you need all advantage you can get. And I would agree that a peak rut had my chance. I'm clumsy and I'm not a very good shot anyhow. I need everything I can get. My hearing has gone to hell. I'm, I'm your typical middle American 52-year-old oh, yeah. guy yeah. who's... Uh, Been hunting with, their whole life yeah, and blowing out their left eardrum. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. We, if we're driving down the road and one guy says something, every time it's like, huh? Yeah. You, you heard the the last two words. Yeah, we got to turn to look at each everybody yeah. anymore. But that's yeah. just part of part of who we are now. So yeah. Well, I just want to make sure that the audience and I think they get it, and they're they're going to get it from the YouTube videos we're producing on this hunt, and from the TV episode we're going to get out of this hunt that Arizona has opportunity galore. Arizona, I, I mean. From when we came down dove hunting to quail hunting to waterfowl hunting to small big game. Is, is javelina considered big game? Considered a big okay. game. Yep. Javelina, whitetails, mule deer, antelope, elk, desert sheep. Bear mountain lion. Bear mountain lion. Turkey. Bighorn sheep. Turkey. Oh, what? you guys have... Oh, yeah. Gould's turkey. Gould's turkey. Gould's turkey, yeah. We hadn't talked about that down here. Yeah. This yeah. Is, they're endemic. I mean, they're, they're to this, this where we're at down here in the southern border, this is where the Goulds are, right? Yep. This is... And, and of course, Arizona and New Mexico have Gould's turkey. Yeah. Um, New Mexico has far fewer tags. They're yeah. just... They're not even... I don't even think to half a dozen yet. Yeah. Um, so the best chance of shooting a Gold's turkey in the United States um, is here with Arizona. So yeah, and you guys have a spring and fall regular turkey season, 
or regular spring? turkey per, yeah. per Merriam. Golds yeah. is only in the only spring. Spring. Mm-hmm. And and they're they're. Uh, the populations are doing really well with re, with the introductions that were done. I don't know. I don't remember when they were put in. Jonathan, do you? Oh, it was a long time ago. It was, it was um, in. I can tell you. Cause I was on 15. one of the first recoveries of collars that didn't go well. It was uh, had to be around ninety three, ninety five, somewhere in that. Huh. Yep. In that. But since then, I mean, uh, we've we've had. Uh, there's a lot of birds on the landscape now, and it's in southern Arizona, especially around that. You know that Fort Huachuca area uh, in that that oak woodland, the same stuff that we're hunting, yeah. hunting Mern's quail, and the same stuff we're hunting is these coos whitetail down here. So I wonder if anyone's ever done a tally of which state has the most species you can hunt. I don't you know. Guys, you guys might. We got to be up there pretty test. close. Yeah, I mean we we definitely manage um, more species than any other inland state mm-hmm. in the country. Um, you know, so we don't even have a coast and we've got more right. species. Yeah. Um, but I will, I will throw the gauntlet down right here <laughs> on any other state out there if you get more because species, I have more know. small game species. We are the small game states because everyone remembers Arizona for the elk, the deer, everything. That's right. the image that's out there. They don't realize we are the small game state. Right. Absolutely. Hands down the best. I've got four squirrel species. Right. I've got five quail species, four of them that you can hunt. The only endangered quail species in North America. It's a mess, probably. Um, I've got, uh, you can get the Grand Slam of skunks in Arizona. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we got western spotteds, hogs, stripes, and hoodeds. Um, you know, I, we've got more cool stuff here than most, I, people just don't even realize. Yeah. Let me give you one one interesting statistic that, that uh we at our uh, one of our people there, the Ed Game and Fish put out. Uh, we have thirty one percent of license holders that were surveyed exclusively hunt small game in Arizona. Thirty one. Thirty one percent exclusively. Twenty percent exclusively hunt big game. So it's, those are have, those are odd numbers, right? So we have forty nine percent that are doing both. If I did my math right. Right. Right, so I mean, small game is a big part of what we do, and and I know that, and that just goes to show that that that's because of the opportunity that's here, right. that in the variety of small game that's out there. Anyway, it's just interesting to me. I've always, I've always thought, you know, this is a big game hunting state. Right. Yeah, and it, and it is, it is. Right. But I I just didn't equate the number of people that exclusively hunt small game, which was it shocked me. Yeah. it really did. Well, but it, it makes sense. But it did shock me. Jonathan, you would have known what kind of little jack or what cottontail rabbit this was, but when I was doing a deer stock, there was a cottontail rabbit about maybe, I don't know, tw- maybe he was 12 inches long. Probably a desert cottontail. He looked really good eating, yeah. but I was in the middle of a stock on yeah. a bedded coos deer, so he got away. Yeah. I, you know, that's another thing. We're the only state in the United States with the trophy jackrabbit of North America. Right. You, the you, largest you, lagomorph in North America. <laughs> you, right you, out here. Right, and I'm right. telling you what, average nine pounds. Average. Really? I shoot jackrabbits bigger than coos deer. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think our heaviest to date um, that we know of, the early science papers say that they had one that was 13.3. 
Um, I know the jackrabbit. Jackrabbit. Thirteen pounds three ounces. Um, the <laughs> the biggest we have so far today is twelve pounds six or eight ounces that that we verified like, right. in our hand. And so uh, um, I've got one mounted that used to sit over my desk there at the office, and um, it was my best today. I think it was like eleven two or something, eleven four. Um, oh. Just these monster rabbits. <laughs> and you know what's even better? They taste awesome. Yeah, you said that when we did the podcast. I mean, few months ago you said you loved them and a couple of people emailed me and said well if you got some guy who thinks jackrabbits are edible he's not an expert on anything because here's the and i i told you that <laughs> hank shaw and i that's how we right. met was our love affair with jackrabbits we both shared a commonality here because jackrabbit is the one species that even hunters hardcore the most hardcore hunters out there will turn their nose up and go what yeah you eat that i'm, uh, I'm in that because, category because you've 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 heard the stories you've heard all the bad yeah and really how many jackrabbits have you eaten one i tried it sure a great basin type jackrabbit in nevada yeah probably blacktail i'll never eat another one but it might have been how i cooked it it could have been how you cooked it or even how you how you cut it up yeah um they have a lot of silver skin on them Right. And that's where the toughness and the and the poor taste comes from. It wow. takes a lot of knife. There's seven muscle groups in each hindquarter. That takes a lot of knife work to get it off. Right. Antelope jackrabbits, oh my gosh. Like I just I fed our entire state legislature jackrabbit last year <laughs> during our legislative day activities. <laughs> fed, him, fed him jackrabbit. And none of our legislatures have died. You'll notice that that was not in the paper. There was no like outbreak of foodborne illness. And they were really surprised. I mean, they're really surprised. Like people, I'll make you a believer with jackrabbit. Yeah. That's one well, of my one thing because it's, it's, it's an incredible. Steve Rennell, I'll tell you, his favorite meal of all, all the wild game if he could eat for the rest of his life, it would be jackrabbit if Hank Shaw cooked it. Really? Well, Hank and I are trying to schedule another podcast. I'm going to bring it up with him because in those listening, you know, you probably know who Hank Shaw is. He's like as cool of a dude as you'll ever meet, but he is, he can cook anything and make it really, really good. And I'm going to give a shameless plug for his current book that's out there right now. It goes with his old book, Duck, Duck, Goose, Buck, Buck, Moose. I, it's it's like great stuff. Sure. So maybe maybe next and, maybe next time I get Hank on the podcast, I'll try to find a way to get you on the podcast, and we'll spend two hours talking about the intricacies <laughs> of preparing jackrabbits and other disrespected small game. That's perfect. Well, and and another shameless plug mm-hmm. um, for your Arizona listeners. Yeah. Uh, Arizona Hank is on his Buck Buck Moose tour. Is he here? Um, he will be coming uh, for Monday night, February 6th, from 6.30 to 9.30 at the Ben Avery facility. Out in the uh, north end of the valley. North end Phoenix. of Phoenix, yeah. yeah. Um, Arizona, he's, he's allowing me to abuse our friendship uh, a little bit <laughs> and, 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 and having us host him. Um, yeah, we've got it. It's, it's open to the public, uh, pre-admission. There's nothing being charged. We're going to do kind of some, some wild game samplings there. Hank's going to do a demo, um, probably do a little bit of cooking too, and then we'll have a, a meet and greet book signing, oh. everything going on. You, so. you know what I ought to do next year? See if I can get Hank to come down here for a few days. We'll go scrape up roadkill. I'll shoot one of those oh. Quata Monday things. We'll <laughs> have Alina. We'll, we'll have everything. And if Hank can't make it edible, I, I put up the white flag. 
That would be fun. That would be really fun. That would be like so cool. I wonder if I could talk him into it. It's worth a try. Between you and Jonathan, you ought to be able to do that, I would think. Yeah, and in all the waterfowl. Because he's like, if, if anyone who says that waterfowl is not good, that, that widgeon we ate last night, Wade, that was excellent. It was. It was. And so Hank can make waterfowl. It can make you crave waterfowl. Oh, yeah. If you do what Hank, follow what Hank says. Anyhow, Hank, you don't owe me anything for that other than appearance on the next podcast <laughs> or a podcast yet to be delivered. So, huh, that, that'd be a cool idea. I mean, then you'd have all the locavores down here scouring your landscape with their buck, buck, moose, duck, duck, goose books. Well, there's anything wrong with that. on the side of the road, eating off their tailgate, grilling and chilling and... Absolutely. Well, that'd be all right. Oh, guys, it's late. I can't believe I held you guys this long. Have we solved all the world's problems yet? I don't know. I'm a little tired after a full day of running around chasing birds. I think you've been and the cha- dog. You've been chasing birds for quite a few days. It's been a few days, absolutely. Yeah, I've been climbing mountains. You know these these uh, at least the the mountains I was hunting. It's not like Montana type hunting where you look up there and okay, it's a three thousand foot elevation gain or two thousand foot, and you just kind of cinch your pack on and you accept it. This is deceiving. It is deceiving. It doesn't look that far across there, and it doesn't look that deep down in the bottom or that deep or that big of a climb back up out of there. But it is, and they kind of have the rounded tops. It just yeah. so the depths are deceiving, right? right. Yeah, and it everything there. I'm looking at my hands right now, and my my legs are just full of scabs from whatever thing Cat I walked claw. by something <laughs> jabbing me through my pants I just, you cannot stock in this country without making tremendous amounts of noise it's it's not fair you did a, a great job on this trip I mean this last trip I mean I, I, I couldn't believe that you would have got that close to that and it was pretty amazing to watch that happen even if you weren't I mean it was it was neat to watch that happen well that's kind of how it I, I guess that's a consolation. I'll take that. Well, but I got to go back to Montana and let my skin grow back to, <laughs> to normal so it doesn't look like I've got some sort of dermatitis here. But all right, guys, I guess to summarize, don't miss the Arizona deadline on February 14th. Gohunt.com forward slash insider. You're going to have the best Arizona odds and analysis you can get. Use the promo code Randy and get a $50 gift certificate. Go out to our YouTube channel right now. We just yesterday posted a video called Hunting Arizona with Randy Newberg and Friends. And it'll give you just a little bit of a teaser here about how much fun we had this week. And if you don't, even if you do draw an elk or antelope tag... Get your calendar out, and in January of 2018, block out a week to come to southern Arizona and do what I just did. Archery hunt for deer, bring your shotgun, and expect that 
one, you're not going to need your mucklucks, you're not going to need your hand warmers, and you're just going to have a ton of fun. So what else are we missing, guys? I think you wrapped it all up. I think we're... Really? No. Jonathan, you got to go on a long drive after this, and what time is it? It's like midnight or something. No, it's 30 miles. It's not a big deal. Okay. Well, I just appreciate you guys chiming in with me. I appreciate you guys dangling the carrots out there in front of me to keep me thinking about other ideas, other opportunities, and holding my feet to the fire of not just letting me say, yeah, someday I'll do that. Because they call me next year Newberg. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that next year. I'll do that next year. And uh, this is, and I told you this, wait, I, as much as there might be times where I looked frustrated, I was having a blast. This has been one of the funnest weeks we've okay. had. And the two camera guys both said the same thing. This, you know what, this is just a wonderful time. The The weather was great. The scenery is different than anywhere else. And it's it's easy on the eye. And there are critters of all sorts in a lot of places. So. I'll tell you some of those views and stuff that are going to be captured on this uh, on this segment. Yeah. Those are worth watching the segment for. Just the views, if nothing else. Yeah. Unbelievable. Going to be amazing footage. So, well, I know we appreciate you have coming out and, and having us on the podcast and everything. So, yeah. Well, I hope we haven't done or said anything that gets you guys in trouble back at headquarters. Oh, no. No? No. All right. Wade's like, well, maybe. <laughs> Jonathan's like, ah, nah. <laughs> uh, well, folks, I I really appreciate you listening. I, I hope you have a feel of how much fun Arizona can be, not just for the big game, but everything else. But certainly don't overlook the big game. Uh, and when you get that license, make the most of it. Come down and do these other things because there's just so much opportunity. And also... Please follow us out on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Randy Newberg Hunter. Please follow us on Instagram. The Instagram, uh, I guess, name or whatever handle you want to call it is Randy Newberg Hunter. And if you want to really keep up to date on what we're doing, Facebook is a really good place for that, Randy Newberg Hunter. And then our, uh, our Hunt Talk Forum gets really busy this time of year. The Hunt Talk Forum is like the place where all the junkies and nuts who are planning their own uh, application strategies like Arizona, uh, planning their own hunts, doing all that stuff. We have a whole section of the forum about tags, drawings, and applications. Uh, go out to Hunt Talk, sign up, uh, participate there, and you'll get a lot of good information. And uh, thanks for listening to this podcast. We really appreciate it, that. Uh, the podcast is just, I, can you believe how many thousands, I don't know if I shared the numbers with you, but tens of thousands of people will download this podcast in the first few days that it's out there. I cannot believe that many people want to listen to Randy Newberg sit around and tell BS stories with a bunch of buddies. <laughs> I don't know if that's a commentary to how bored America is or as our buddy Jerry Pritchard says, Newberg, 
The mere fact that anyone listens to you shows you how far a line of BS can get you in America. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, folks, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, we have some great guests coming up uh, for the next podcast. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but uh, when you hear that podcast, you're going to enjoy it very much. Thanks for listening.